Lord, we are so thankful for your kindness, for your for the way in which, Lord, you guide us not only um, to receive the truth of your gospel, but to live out our lives as disciples. And Lord, I ask that during our time this morning that we would allow ourselves to be teachable, that your word would be free to expose us in the areas of our lives, Lord, that we need to be challenged so that we can actually be the kind of disciples you are calling us to be as we seek to minister the gospel in this world. Allow me as your messenger, Lord, to be faithful. Lord, give us what we need for this day. We ask in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I want to begin this morning by reading from a book, the introduction to the book, Loving Your Community by Pastor Steve Byers. Some of you might know the name. He's the pastor of Faith Baptist Church in Lafayette, which is kind of the, the hub for the biblical counseling movement. And that church, um, although relatively meager in size, had lots of acreage over the years has become um, really a, a place to be an example for us about how to interact with the community. And I want you to listen to what he says. It was the end of a very long, hot day. A friend and I were participating in the annual rain ride, short for Ride Across Indiana. Cyclists start at the Illinois border at sunrise, and ride their bicycles straight east to the Ohio border in one day, a distance of just over 160 miles. Seasoned participants often talk about the quality of the rest stops spread out every 30 miles or so. Local volunteers in small communities take great pride in preparing a delightful assortment of ice beverages and high-energy snacks for the riders. Cyclist families and friends also use these designated places to meet their loved ones and cheer them on to the finish line. The atmosphere is electric because of the convergence of civic pride and athletic accomplishment. There is nothing quite like getting off your bike and having a complete stranger hand you a cold drink and an energy bar along with a pat on the back and an encouraging word. The various stops along the route even have friendly competition between communities to see which can serve the riders best. On this particular afternoon, as a group of us were, were coming to one of the final stops, I spotted a beautiful church building with a large parking lot. As a pastor myself, I wondered if any of the members of that congregation would be joining their friends and neighbors to serve the athletes and their families. I started making mental connections between a, a vacant church parking lot on Saturday afternoon and a host of people needing a place to park for a few minutes to serve and celebrate with the ones they love. As the scene came into clear focus, I saw a man dragging a sawhorse, sawhorse down the church driveway with a homemade sign hastily affixed to one end. He was on a mission for sure, and my first thought was, I hope that sign doesn't say what I think it does. Sure enough, I reached the spot just as he was erecting his instructions. No parking allowed here. In all fairness, I suppose the church may have been preparing to host a giant event in a few minutes and simply could not spare any parking spots for these neighbors in need. But honestly, I highly doubt it the more likely explanation is that he had fallen victim to an attitude and philosophy that seems to affect many churches regarding the way they think about sharing what they have with others in their communities. Say no unless you have to say yes. But is that what Scripture calls us to do, he goes on. Paul told the legalistic Galatians, let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time, we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then while we have the opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Then he says, here is my point. 
wise churches, and I would add in their individuals, look for every opportunity to share love and resources with those around them. We ought to be guided by the principle, say yes, unless you have to say no. In other words, he is saying, look for ways to love others in the name of Christ. Now consider the following situations, following scenarios. What if you're a young couple and an unmarried couple moves in next door with two children? How will you interact with them? Do you bake some cookies and welcome them into the community? Do you host a block party so that they can meet the other neighbors that are around them? Or should you be weary of them because they're unmarried? Maybe you should avoid them. Maybe you shouldn't allow your kids to play with them because they have different values. What's a Christian to do in that kind of context? What if you're a middle-aged Christian woman having lunch with a female co-worker who recently married her lesbian partner? And she confides in you that her wife has recently been diagnosed with colon cancer. What does a Christian look like in that moment? How does that Christian, or that Christianity sound? How does it feel? What if you're an older man who loves to play golf and you, you often go on your own? And on this particular day, you're partnered with an Indian man by the name of Raj who is a Hindu. After a few holes of golf, some casual small talk, he confides in you that his wife is in the hospital dying and the reason he's out here playing golf is he just can't bear to think about it. He's trying to get his mind off of it. What does your Christianity look like in that moment? What do you say? How do you respond? How are we to respond to all the social issues and concerns that we face in our neighborhoods and communities and towns and cities? Things like drug abuse and teen pregnancy and domestic violence and crime and poverty and homelessness and racial tension. How should you as a Christian respond to these social problems? How should I respond to these social problems? How should we as Christians think about the people, the men, the women, the boys, and the girls that are suffering because of these issues? And if we're honest... We feel a tension between two competing priorities. The priority number one of being Christ's ambassadors, seeking to reconcile the message, to reconcile people to God through the message of good news. And the other, I want to say, side of the spectrum, being God's holy people who are called out, who are set apart. We're people that are called out by God. We're, we're called out to come out, come out from them and be separate. We're called to be in the world and not of the world. So these things are, are, are intention together. And if we're honest, living with a godly balance is a difficult thing. One person has thoughtfully said, balance is that elusive point we pass on the way to our next extreme. So what are we to do? Well, what we as Christians always do and must do is come humbly to God's Word and allow the Holy Spirit to shape our thoughts so that we can live out what God is calling us to do. As disciples, we recognize that we're part of God's church, His called out ones. And in the Scriptures, there are a number of metaphors used to describe the church. Right? There's the body, there's the, the, the building, there's the flock. But there are also other ways of distinguishing the church that historians or theologians have, have used. We talk about it often. There's the visible church and then the invisible church. The visible church being those that you see, but not everyone you see is actually part of the true invisible church. Then there's the local church as opposed to the universal church. Some letters are written specifically to local churches. Some are written generally to the churches. The reformers talked about the church triumphant. 
and the church militant, the church triumphant being those believers who are now in heaven, and the church militant being those who are still on the earth in the army of the Lord, fighting with Jesus as their captain. Friends, there's a battle going on, and we are in it. With Jesus as our captain, we join the ranks of his army clothed with the armor of God. It's a spiritual battle. It's against a spiritual foe. But that spiritual battle involves flesh and blood people. You don't go out into the world and just kind of battle ideologies, right? You actually go out in the world and you have to interact with people who embrace those ideologies and are proclaiming those ideologies. And the spiritual battle involves flesh and blood, people who hate Christianity, people who are indifferent to Christianity, people who are driven by the ideologies and schemes that are rooted directly in the devil himself. And that is the world God has called us to engage with. Happy days, my friends, happy days. But see, this is the very people for whom Christ died and calls us to proclaim the gospel to. You and I were once part of that crew. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that. This is the, the dark world that we were a part of. But Jesus made us alive. And sometimes I wonder whether we as God's children just settle into our Christianity and forget about where we came from. And that there are those outside of the church whom God is drawing to himself by virtue of his disciples opening up their mouths, living their lives, interacting with them. So this morning, my proposition is this. Disciples are to compel others to follow Jesus by their God-given influence as salt and light. Disciples are to compel others. That means that we have something to say. We've been given the gospel for ourselves, yes, but also as disciples now to go out and to speak about and speak to other people about. Disciples are to compel others to follow Jesus. We want them to, to find the satisfaction and the joy that we have experienced in Christ. And so we do this by their God-given influence as salt and light. We read this passage here, Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 16. Our actual text for this morning is verses 13 through 16. And Jesus says two things. He declares two things. You are the salt of the earth, verse 13, and then you are the light of the world. This is who you are. We must make some brief observations here. First of all, the word you emphasizes the unique nature or a specific people, and it's plural. In other words, he's saying, as if he was from the south, y'all are the salt of the earth, the light of the world. All of you here who are my children, who are my disciples. Now, to whom is the you referring to? Jesus is referring back to the group of people he has just described in verses 3 through 12. We often call this the Beatitudes. These are the poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, those who are reviled, persecuted, and the recipients of all kinds of evil because they're followers of Christ, those who are called to rejoice and be glad, whose reward is in heaven. It's those people that he's referring to. You are something. 
The word are here stresses your being rather than your doing. And friends, this is really, really important. Jesus is stating or declaring a fact, not giving a command or a request. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. He isn't saying strive to become salt and light. He is saying salt and light is what you are. So as disciples of Christ, we must embrace this declaration. We must accept it for what it is, and we must allow it to fuel us for missions. And missions is anything outside of this door. Friends, God places us in this world and on this earth not to become salt and light, but because we are salt and light. In other words, being a disciple means being salt and light. This is our calling. This is our mission. This is our fight. So first of all, you are the salt of the earth. Now, the uses of salt are many and varied. In our modern context, the primary use of salt is to add it to food. Now, it always interests me if I go out with someone, not that I'm paying attention to all these things all the time, but it just always interests me that someone will ask for salt and put salt on their food before they what? Before they even taste it. Some people just have the habit, i got to have salt, got to have salt. It's never salty enough, right? Now, some things are wonderful with more salt, right? French fries. Steak. Eggs. You get a hard-boiled egg just by itself. Roll it in salt. Mm, much better. Caramel. Whoever came up with that? Salted caramel. I mean, what a genius. Avocado. So in the modern context, it has the idea of adding flavor. It was used in ancient times, though, to bind a covenant. It was symbolic. It was used to seal an agreement, or it was a mark of friendship. In Jesus' day, we find salt being used in different ways. The Romans considered salt a valuable commodity. And in fact, they often paid soldiers with salt. Now, I know that if you came and worked for me and I gave you salt, you'd be like, I mean... What's the point of that? Well, in their day, it was a valuable commodity. And that's why the expression that man is not worth his salt is where it comes from. He didn't do the job well. He doesn't deserve this payment of salt. But in Jesus' day, the use of salt was primarily a preservative. Surely what Jesus is saying here would be quickly understood by the audience as being a normal domestic use for salt. Jesus has a tendency just to use normal daily things. In a time when there was no refrigerators or deep freezers, salt was used to preserve. When meat was covered in salt, it prevented decay. So the main point of this metaphor is that Jesus' disciples, you and I, will prevent moral decay in the world. Just by our very presence being followers of Christ, disciples of Christ. And this tells us then something about the world that we live in, doesn't it? It is rotten. It is decaying but it is the presence of Christians that slows down the process. They are the preserving influence in a rotten and decaying world. Friends, we don't have to look far to see that the world is on a morally rotten, decaying trajectory. We live in a society that is not offended by rampant immorality. The news is constantly reminding us of daily shootings and certain kinds of violence that is taking place. You can hardly check your email te or text without regularly deleting scammers trying to get your money by one click. Homelessness is out of control. And love and protection for chickens and pigs and dogs and cats and cows and frogs is held higher 
than a love for and protection of children in the womb. It's a rotten, decaying world. And yet God places his children who are disciples to be a preserving agent of that spread of that moral decay. I left one off here. That's theft of people's property. I read this week of a lady who was sitting down here at Foothill Safeway in her car in the middle of the day. Her husband had gone in to do the shopping. She was sitting in the car in the driver's seat. Car drives up, two guys get out and start to try and steal her Cadillac converter while she's in the car. My friends, our outlook on this world is understandably pessimistic, isn't it? Especially here in the Bay, people are moving out of California by the thousands and there doesn't seem to be any positive progress on the horizon. But hear this, this is what Jesus says to those people listed here as part of the Beatitudes. He says, rejoice and be glad for great is your reward on the earth. Is that what it says? It says, great is your reward in heaven. Oh, the decay and the rottenness is there. And we might get sucked into this kind of depression because it's there, but the Lord wants us to realize there's something greater than this world. Something wonderful that we are waiting for. And so we rejoice and we bl- we're glad. Why? Because we are the salt of the earth. We have a job to do. In other words, you are the restraining influence in society. You bring a moral clarity to all that rottenness and the filth that is out there. If you remember William Wilberforce, who championed this, this whole fight against slavery in England, it took him years to convince those British elites that this needed to be done. And as a result, the slave trade was diminished and finally ended and it influenced even us here in the United States. Christian man who desired to end this horrible slavery. And friends, you may not be a William Wilberforce, but you are salt. Now, I don't know if you've ever driven across San Mateo Bridge, and as you do, you notice these little kind of areas that are out there. They're like salt flats, very minimal salt kind of gatherings and stuff like that. You can go to a place called Salt Lake City which is called Salt Lake City because it's next to a salt lake. And in that salt lake, there are manufacturing companies that mine or harvest the salt, and they package it, and they put it in the grocery stores, and you use it. This past summer, my wife and I spent a couple of days outside of Salzburg, which means salt castle, And it's a region where salt was mined from the mountains. People need salt. It's a valuable commodity because of what it does. About a year and a half ago, while I was in Bolivia, the Mojica family wanted to bless me, and they sent me and Matias Jr. on a trip to the Uyuni Salt Flats, which is the largest salt flat spanning over 4,000 square miles and sits at 12,000 feet elevation. I mean, everywhere you look, I just, we drove out into the middle of this, everywhere you look, salt. It looked like snow is what it looked like, but it was just salt. And they estimate there's about 10 million, 10 billion tons of salt there. Now friends, you might just be one grain of salt, but you are salt. But if Dennis is with me, there's two grains of salt. If Joy is with us, there's three grains of salt. And if we're all kind of doing this salty thing, we become this wonderful, powerful influence in our society. Why? Because we are, by our very nature, salt. You are the salt of the earth. You are a preserving agent in this world. 
Why? Because you are a disciple of Christ. Secondly, you are the light of the world. Now, I know a few weeks ago we looked at that in relationship to Jesus being the light of the world. Certainly, he is the one who is identified as the light of the world. But the reason we are salt is because we are living in a decaying world. Now, Jesus speaks of light, and he's speaking to us because there is darkness, and we reflect the light of Christ. John 8, 12 says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. But now it's applied to his disciples as those who reflect the light to the world. Think of it like this. The sun is the source of light, and at night, usually once or so or a few times during the month, there's this thing called the moon, and it's bright, and it lights up the sky, but the moon is not emanating its own light. It is simply reflecting the light from the sun, and it's so powerful from the sun that it gives light even in the midst of darkness. It's kind of who we are as his disciples. We are light. Salt has the influence of preserving. Light has the influence of proclaiming. Salt is more indirect in its influence of the gospel, whereas light is more direct in its communication. Salt works primarily through the living out while light works primarily through what we teach, preach, and say. Light works through what we say and pro- as, we, uh, as we proclaim the gospel. Not only does light reveal what is wrong and false, but it also helps to produce what is righteous and true. What does light do? It scatters the darkness so that men can see. Now, hopefully you don't have a house riddled with cockroaches, but maybe you've been in a house, and you come, go down to the basement, you go into a room, and you turn the light on, and all of a sudden you hear things, and you see things, and they scamper away. Now, you may not be able to see where they're scampering to, which is kind of a scary thought, isn't it? But light has an effect. It also gives guidance. It reveals danger and the right path to follow. And disciples living pure and righteous lives will shine and stick out in the dark world. Their very presence will give cause for the world to either embrace the truth of their condition and God's solution, in other words, the gospel that comes to save them from their sins, or they will reject it outright. Friends, as disciples of Christ, we must embrace that we are by our very nature as God's children, salt and light. We must embrace the fact that we are restraining agents of the rottenness and decay of this world and as well as exposing and revealing agents in the darkness. This is who we are. Now, it's not easy to be a disciple in this dark, decaying world, is it? Our society is not a friend to God. It's not a friend to God's people unless the God that we want to worship is actually changed to conform to what the world wants him to be, and then they're happy with it. But not the God of the Bible. They'll tolerate followers of that God for a while, but sooner or later they will turn on them because they are that restraining agent for their freedom to follow their fleshly appetites. And also because they are shining the light to expose them for the sinners that they really are. So whether we like it or not, there is conflict between us and the world, and we're in a fight for God's glory. Now friends, this is part of the challenge of living in a society that has had such a Christian basis to it, where Christians can go to church and they can study God's Word and they can sing songs and they can go back home and not have a thought about someone down the street, across the table, at work, who is lost 
And the condition of that lostness and the implication of that lostness mean that they are going and destined for hell. We can become and think have become very comfortable and very complacent in the wonderful blessing of what it means to be in the church. And in this passage, Jesus is seeking to wake us up. Because if you're salt and if you're light, it's going to be conflict. See, because we're different from the world and have different attitudes and different goals. That is what the Beatitudes represent, a radically different outlook than that of the world. The world is at war with God while he is seeking to reconcile his enemies, them, and make them his children. I mean, they're fighting him, and he's like drawing them. They're fighting him, and he's drawing They're fighting him. And once they come in, they're gloriously saved. This is the nature of what's going on. So Jesus gives us some warnings, doesn't he, about what it means to be salt and light. We've seen that we are salt and light. Now we must see what we can become tasteless and ultimately hidden. See, salt can lose its taste. Look at verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. In other words, it's worthless. It's, not, it's no good anymore. Now, a little closer look at the phrase translated, has lost its taste, we'll see that it's one Greek word, and it means to be foolish, absurd, deficient, and dull. In other words, something has happened to the impactful nature of the salt. I know it's translated taste, but that isn't necessarily the idea of what's going on here. In other words, its powerful impact and restraining power has been diluted, and it is now useless and powerless. It no longer, uh, it's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out. See, that the power or the bite of salt has has diminished because it has been contaminated or diluted by other impurities. See, I'm, I'm not a chemist, but I know the, 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 the compound of salt is a pretty stable thing. But you mix salt with other things, and the impact and the power of that salt is diminished or could be gone now, throughout Scripture, his friends, we're warned to avoid being contaminated by the world. But when we compromise, we sh or shrink back in fear or look to assimilate to the culture and are contaminated, contaminated by the impurities of the world, we lose our influence. And friends, the influence of, of Christians in and on society depends on their being distinct, not identical. Lloyd-Jones emphasizes this. This is what he says. The glory of the gospel is that when the church is absolutely different from the world, she invariably attracts it. I just think about that. Modern thinking would be, we need to be like the world to win the world. Now, we don't want to go the other extreme and say, we want to be so kind of opposite the world that they're looking at us and saying, you're weird. No, we don't want that. But we're, we're not to be like the world in order to reach the world. We're to be disciples of Christ. Salt and light. And if we're salt and light, that will have an impact on this world. He goes on. It is then that the world is made to listen to her message, though it may hate it at first. I wonder how many of you maybe in particular those who came to faith at a later age, at first hated the gospel. I'll raise my hand as one of those people. I mocked it. I scorned it. My parents would regularly have like home group and Bible study going on in the living room. I'd be upstairs with my friends laughing at the whole thing. And yet God was slowly pushing, pulling me. 
You know, just, I just knew it. Something in me was like, okay, there's something going on here, but I would still mock. And yet God was at work. Now, based on verses 3 through 12, the Beatitudes, if your life is not different in a righteous way, you will have no credibility. You will not be taken seriously. You will have no influence at all. So if you try and diminish your distinction, you're diminishing your effectiveness as salt and light. Not only can salt lose its taste, but light can be hidden. Verse 14, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. So you're, you're the light of the world, and then he gives us these two illustrations that are warnings to us. Your city on a hill, your people, uh, there's this lamp that's put on a stand. Both of these illustrations are supposed to show us the ridiculous nature of anyone who is a light trying to hide it. Let's take the first one, a city on a hill. If you want to live a quiet and peaceful life where people are not going to bother you, you will tend to go into the woods in an obscure place and build your house. If you want to be seen, you will build your house and your city on a hill. And what Jesus is saying to the disciples is that I have called you to be a people who are set on a hill that your light can be seen in the darkness. Now, he's not talking specifically about Jerusalem. He's just generically talking about why would a city be on a hill? It's on a hill to be seen, and at night, its light radiates. Then the image Jesus is using here is a lamp on a stand. It's probably the most common of things that is found in a house Every home had a lamp that lit up the main room. They didn't have switches. No electricity back then, right? They had lamps. And either they would have like a stand in the middle of the room so that the light from this lamp could radiate through the house, or they had little, little places off of the walls where they could put them and it would radiate again around through the house. It would be ridiculous to think that someone... You know, that mama would get up in the morning, she would light the lamp, and then she would take some kitchen bowl and stick it over the lamp and say, isn't that great? It makes no sense. The purpose of the light is to shine. And yet, disciples can have a tendency to hide that light. What are some reasons we might be tempted to cover up the light of Christ? I just jotted down three that came to mind. First of all, we are afraid of the darkness. I mean, aren't, aren't you just afraid at times of what is out there? Are there not places you know, in the Bay Area you're just like, I just don't want to go there, and I certainly don't want to go there at night? Something about darkness that puts fear into our hearts. This happened to me one time uh, a number of years when I was living in Michigan. And I remember we lost power. And as a result of that, middle of the night, I had to go down into the basement. It was pitch black. And as I descended the stairs, my mind started to wander. Things that I... You know, things that you've watched on TV or in a movie or read about. Uh, your mind starts to do funny things in that moment. And you're hearing a sound and you're wondering what's around the corner. You're in darkness. You don't have clarity. And so it's easy to be afraid. And I remember just having to stop and having to fight in my heart and my mind and my thinking and saying, Lord, you are sovereign over me. You are fully in control and there is nothing at the bottom of these stairs that can undermine my life for you. Unless it's a piece of Lego, right? And it's something like that that you stepped on. But 
my, our minds can be so easily drawn away in fear because of the darkness. You've been there? Secondly, we feel inadequate to speak in the darkness. I just don't know how I could speak to these people. They're so persuasive. They're so angry. They're so hateful. They, they, they hate the things of the Lord. How could I even open my mouth and say something? I don't have the tools. I don't have the resources. And the third thing I jotted down was this, that we are confused and as a result ashamed by what the world says and thinks. When they call something good that is actually evil, and they call evil good, we're like the the you know the, the cheetah cheetah yeah, yeah, yeah. you know what in the world is going on here? How do we respond? How do we how do we even have a conversation? So rather than engage, what do we do? We retreat. And friends, I wonder if the church in America, the church in California, the church in the Bay our church is retreating because of the darkness. When God has called us to be what? <laughs> light. Friends, we don't stop being salt and light, but we can hinder our effectiveness and our usefulness for the gospel advancements if we don't heed these warnings. So what are we going to do? had a declaration, we have a warning, but now comes the command. The disciples are called to let your light shine before others. In the same way, verse 16, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and glorify and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. When our lights shine, we will show the world how Christ is at work in us. They will see what makes us different because of the gospel. The good works are the natural ways disciples are bearing gospel fruit in their lives. So again, we go back to verses 3 through 12. The blessed person Jesus talks about here has the kingdom of heaven. He's comforted. He knows that he will inherit the earth. He's satisfied. He, he knows that he will receive mercy. He knows that he will see God. He knows that he's called the son of, sons of God. He knows that he has the kingdom of heaven. These are all things that are true because you're a disciple of Christ. This is who you are, and this is what satisfies you. It is this radical gospel change that bears fruit in good works and allows those in darkness to glorify God the Father in heaven. Paul in Philippians chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, gives us some more specifics. This is what he says. That you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Does that sound kind of similar? Among whom you shine as lights in the world. Holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ, you may be proud, or I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. So the, the, the emphasis here are two things, living lives that are blameless, innocent, and without blemish, and secondly, holding fast to the word of life. Work on your own piety, your own growth in Christ. Love the Word. You know, salt and light has been the hallmark of Christianity through the centuries. Many Christians have been the hands and feet of Christ challenging the world for change. They've moved 
to bring about prison reform and medical care and abolish slavery and abolish the child labor abuses to establish orphanages and rehab centers. Nations have been affected by the salt and light of gospel revival. Martin Lloyd-Jones helps us see that when he says this. Most competent historians are agreed in saying that what undoubtedly saved England from a revolution such as uh, that experienced in France at the hand of the 18th at uh, the end of the 18th century, was nothing but the evangelical revival. And you can think of people like John Wesley, who were at work then. This was not because anything was done directly, but because masses of individuals had become Christians and were living this better life and had this higher outlook. The whole political situation was affected, and the great acts of parliament which were passed in the last century were mostly due to the fact that there were such large numbers of individual Christians found in the land. Salt and light having an impact, having an effect on the world in which they live. So it's our main goal to see that the gospel is proclaimed to the end of the earth because when it is proclaimed, people will be called out of darkness and communities and towns and villages and cities and nations will change. And we might look out and say, there's no way that could happen. And there were a number of disciples in a little room with Jesus being sent out. As you're going, make disciples of all what? Nations. I mean, can you imagine? <laughs> There's 12 of us. All nations? There's more nations than there are of us. All nations. Looks bad now, but that's now. Who knows, in 50 years, maybe the church will have a revival. People's hearts will be changed. There'll be a, a mass of people coming into the body of Christ because people, disciples, have been salt and light in this generation. This means that our goal is to live our lives as gospel or for gospel advancement, no matter the circumstances, no matter the context. It means that like the blessed man of verses 2 through 12, we are willing to face suffering and hardship like the prophets of old. And I just think that the church right now is flabby. We don't want to face hardship. We don't want to suffer. Well, no one really wants to suffer. We don't get up and say, yeah, give it to me. But are you willing to endure some stuff? because you're a child of God? Are you willing to take a risk? Are you willing to, to, to be kind of pushed aside? Or are you willing for someone to say no because you're a child of God? It means living life on the offensive while being vigilant on the defense. No sports is without an offense. And no offense can be effective without a well-thought-through defense. As disciples, we need to join arms with our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ to defend the faith, but it is out of that foundational faith that we are to go on the offensive. Friends, we can be theologically strong, but impactfully weak. We can attend church, home groups, Bible studies, do our personal devotions, all of which are good and necessary. I don't want to say that that's wrong. It's, it's right. It's the, the heartbeat of who we are as God's children. This is what God calls us to do. But actually, we can do all those things and have little impact and little influence on the world in which we live because we are living life on the defensive. Can we just stop doing that? Can we start thinking about living our Christian lives on the offensive. We know who wins. But we might believe that, oh, it's just getting worse and worse and we're going to just hide. No. 
God doesn't call us to hide. He says, move ahead. As you are going, keep going to the end of the earth. Have you reached the end of the earth? No, keep going. And by the way, I am with you. So what does it look like as we live as salt and light in a decaying and dark world? I have just four areas here just to quickly cover. One, in your neighborhood. And these, by the way, would be good discussion items for lunch today. (laughs) In your neighborhood, take the initiative to talk to your neighbors. Maybe bake them some cookies or some banana bread and take it over. Inviting them over for a meal. Helping them when they're out of town or on vacation. Getting their mail. Feeding their pets. Cutting their grass. Serve them, right? Go on walks together. Let your kids play with their kids. If they're not believers, teach your kids how to, how to live and behave even with children who don't know the Lord. And as you are doing so, be mindful to share bits and pieces of your life so that they can see that Jesus Christ is your hope and your satisfaction. No, I don't, I'm not talking about manipulation here. I'm talking about live life with people. Be comfortable with people that are unbelievers. Share your faith. It is who you are. You you know, meet someone who is LGBTQ, they're telling you who they are. Meet someone who's a Christian, so what do you do? Well, you know, look, this is who we are. We're followers of Christ. And we don't need to be obnoxious about it, right? So live your Christian life in front of them without any pomp. I mean, it's not like Sunday morning. Hey, neighborhood, we're all going to church this morning. Just want you to know that. Beep, 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 beep. Everyone wake up. The whole family's getting in the car now because we go to church on Sunday mornings. We're not talking about that. But we're talking about just genuinely live your life for the Lord. And and don't be afraid of what people will think. Secondly, in your workplace. How can you be salt and light in your workplace? Work hard as a follower of Christ should do. An employer is going to love a good, hardworking employee. Be kind and gracious and encouraging and quick to resolve any issues that may come up. Ask about your coworkers, their family, and their hobbies. When they tell you something, be sure to pay close attention and follow up. And, you know, talk about them more than talking about you. Invite them over for a meal or maybe have lunch with them. Ask questions about their experiences on the job. Allow them to teach you, to shape you with their experience and their expertise. If there is a crisis or a trial, seek to be a blessing. Ask if they would be okay with you praying for them. Most people will say, yeah which gives you an opportunity then to follow up and say, hey, I I told you I would pray. How are things going? Be genuine. Pray for God to work through you. Pray for God to work in their hearts so that conversations will naturally flow. I know in many business places today, you're not allowed to say anything religious. Yeah, but they can't stop you from being who you are. So you find a way to make it work. You find a way to have conversations. You find a way to talk about things that matter. When someone says, how are you doing? Say, you know, I'm doing better than I deserve, thankfully. Ah, that's religious talk. No, no, it's not religious talk. It's just generally who you are. I'm thankful. Hey, how was your week? It was great. What did you do this weekend? Well, we went to, to, we went to the beach on Saturday. On Saturday night, we met our parents for, for dinner. On Sunday, we went to church and had a great time, and we had like a church picking after. It was a wonderful time to be with those people. How can you say that? That's religion. That's what I did. Just your normal people talk about life. So in your neighborhood, in your workplace, in your community, Are you aware of the many needs in your community? Food banks, shelters, after-school programs, litter removal, places where you could volunteer and serve? Are there opportunities for your Christian voice to be heard? Maybe a school board meeting, local council meeting, at the voting booth? Did you vote in the last election? 
I don't, I, no, I don't do that. Remember your what? Salt. And the world is coming to you saying, we want your opinion. Here are all these measures. Here are all these proposals. Sometimes it's the measures and the proposals and the judges on the ballot that are far more important than the two parties that we have. Because they're going to shape your local communities and the state in which you're in. You take time to study the proposals and figure out the way to, to answer it. This is one of the ways that you can be salt. Friends, it is bad out there. We understand that. That God isn't sitting up in heaven scratching his head wondering what he should do next. He's called his disciples to be salt and light where he has placed them. And friends, he has placed his disciples in far worse places than you are experiencing right now. And the church has thrived. Finally, on the mission field, how can we be salt and light on the mission field? Well, yes, we could go over, we could do our thing on the mission field, but our, our strategy is to help those who are already there be salt and light in their particular communities. So we go, we help, we train, we build these relationships. God has blessed us with finances, with time, with resources that can help those churches to be outpost locations that seek to, set the, to let their light shine. This is what we're trying to do in Bolivia. This is what we're trying to do in Ukraine. You know, I, I struggle with the fact that we haven't been back to Ukraine, not because it's about me, but because I just want to make sure that we're doing all that we can to help those churches. With our limited <laughs> presence, God has been wonderful to give us gracious opportunity there. So just four concluding thoughts. I know, like four concluding thoughts, Pastor Rod. Give it to us quickly. Here they are. Number one, embrace it. Your salt and light, embrace it. God is calling you as a disciple of Christ to be salt and light. Embrace it as something that he is actively equipping you to be. So trust his sovereignty to have placed you in the Bay Area, in your job, in your school, living in your particular neighborhood. This is all part of your moral responsibility. Embrace it. Say, God, what do you want me to do with it? Secondly, bathe it. I don't mean wash it. I mean bathe it in prayer. If this is what you've called me to do and be, this is what I am, and Lord, help me to see what that looks like in my particular circumstance, in my particular situation. Pray for boldness. Pray for understanding. Pray for open doors. Pray for conversations. Bathe it in prayer. Number three, Equip it. There's a reason why we have equipping classes and home groups and Bible studies and marriage conferences and things like that. Why? Because we want to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Some of the work of the ministry happens in the context of the church, but a lot of ministry happens out there in the darkness, in the decaying world. And we're trying to equip God's people to actually have interaction and an impact in that context. So study God's Word. Be ready to give an answer of the hope that is in you. Be teachable and grow. And don't let failure or resistance stop you. Press on for God's glory. Finally, live it. Look at one of the arenas mentioned. And with prayer and God's help, seek to be salt and light. And trust that the Lord is at work even though your efforts are tentative. Do we understand who God is? And do we understand who God has created us to be? And how that is at work then as we, his disciples, seek to take the gospel forward 
Maybe one of the things that we need to do is to change our attitude. Do we truly have compassion for the lost? Do we love people? Or are we just settled in our comfort, satisfied where we are, not thinking about building the kingdom, more focused on the kingdom that we can build for ourselves? Lord, help us today to not be running down a parking lot with a sign that says, No parking allowed here. But Lord, may we see in our lives opportunities where we welcome people into our lives for gospel purposes, for gospel advance, so that we can see the gospel go forward. Help our attitudes, Lord, to be shaped and fashioned by your word. And allow us to rejoice that we are salt and light. We ask this now in your name. Amen.